EK Publishing Media presents The Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen. Episode 14, Calypso. Welcome to a semi-romantic, semi-creepy Valentine's episode of The Apocalypse Theater Podcast. Even though it's a romantic theme, you guys know me well enough to be sure there's some eerie stuff that plays out in this story. There were two different versions of this that competed for this episode's slot. The one I liked was the futuristic space version, but it would have taken much longer because it would have been another episode in Lance Hunter's story, which I'm also working on. Sort of. He has a huge part in the book I'm currently working on, so there will be additional episodes of him and probably a series of books that will be coordinated along with the rest of the badass heroes that come out of that series. But the sci-fi version of things isn't the story that made it to this episode. I sincerely hope this becomes a proper movie one day, because I consider it more of the short story that the movie should be based upon, mostly because it's a very surreal and colorful romantic tale that I'm just not romantic enough to want to stay with. Romance is hard to write. True romance is something that the average human only experiences once or twice in their life. My wife asks me why I typically don't write anything romantic. It's all creepy stories, epic fantasy, or historical fiction. I told her that all my stories are romance stories that haven't gotten to the romantic parts yet. Maybe I just never saw the appeal to write romance. But here's one that I wanted to get just right. Just for you. Because I know how much it means to you. Enjoy episode 14, Calypso, in the spirit of Valentine's Day. 1. There's an element of narcissism to our human existence. We believe death is far away, that we will be the last one to cross the bridge before it's too late, and that disasters happen to others, never to us. Samuel Green, a high-level marketing analyst, had imagined his death on a plane hundreds of times as he flew from one country to the next. He assumed it would be quick, and that there would be nothing one could do to survive. None of his planes had crashed yet. He came back to the moment as he sipped a cup of airline coffee after having left Tianjin in China to return home for Christmas. He thought about that as he looked out the window to the sunset over the clouds on the trip back to Dallas, Texas, where his wife was about to have their first child. Due a week from Christmas, little Shauna Green would be the ultimate Christmas gift for their growing family. Sam imagined she would be a wise child, the quiet observant type like her father. There's the idea that you want your kids to grow up on their own to be whomever they wish to be, but secretly, deep down, every parent fantasizes about their child, theoretical or still in their romping infantile stages, being someone who changes the world. That was the train of thought Sam was following when the engine of the plane exploded outside his window in a jet of flame and smoke that screamed along with the other passengers. Babies began to squeal relentlessly as oxygen masks dropped from the ceiling. It all happened within seconds. One woman was shrieking behind Sam, but it was all still tangible, still observable. It wasn't happening nearly as quickly as he had always imagined. The plane dipped down and Sam's heart went into his throat. The captain said something over the loudspeaker, but it was impossible to hear him over the panicking passengers. A man fell out of the bathroom as the stewardess tried to get the cart back to the tiny kitchen up front. She was panicking herself, so she ran into him repeatedly as he screamed for her to stop. Sam's eyes widened as they plunged through the cloud cover they had been flying over toward a raging, stormy sea below. There was a blank period of them rushing through the darkness until a flicker of lightning illuminated the raging ocean that was so huge and close it was terrifying. He ducked low in his seat as the vessel slammed into the water, instantly breaking apart the plane ahead of him. He grabbed and pulled the yellow package under his seat as water flooded up to his ankles in seconds. He frantically pressed the seatbelt button as the sea overtook his whole body. The seatbelt released and he was violently lifted through the cabin with dozens of other passengers and pulled into the open sea. He didn't know how the main part of the plane had gotten so far away, but it looked to be half a mile out as it ruptured and exploded on the ocean's surface. Sam felt the heat of it on his face before he fumbled with the package under his arm while kicking to keep his face above water. He sucked rainy gulps of air. He had watched and hated that stewardess on every flight as he or she showed you how to inflate your raft. Now, as he tried to stay calm through the panic, he berated himself for not listening to every word. Eventually, he was able to thread the rope from one end around his wrist and pull enough for the gas canister to trigger. In front of him, to his great relief, the big hexagonal inflatable raft burst into existence. He clambered and struggled against the slick side of the raft for what felt like five minutes before he was able to get into the damn thing. Sam looked around, searching for survivors, but he couldn't see his hand two feet ahead of him. It was pitch black other than the random flicker of lightning that cast an instant of light upon an endless seascape of churning waves. He patted the pockets of his blazer and slacks for his phone, but everything had gotten sucked away from him by the sea. 
Somewhere nearby, he heard someone calling for help. Sam called back, beckoning for them to follow the sound of his voice, but the person became more and more distant until he couldn't hear them at all. He heard no one else as he was dizzyingly swept away. His stomach became nauseated from the up-and-down motions of the sea. He lay down in the damp water that soaked the bottom of the raft from the torrent of rain. An hour later, the storm had passed. Sam was left in a far more placid moving of the waves as the clouds rolled away, leaving the massive Milky Way heavens to light the shifting sea below. Out here, there was no light pollution, nothing to censor the complete view of the universe. Sam's seasickness subsided as the awe-inspiring view gleamed down upon him. They had been three hours from the western coast of the United States, which put a lot of sea between him and land. Now that his stomach had relaxed a little, Sam peered over the side of the raft. He could see the surface of the ocean. It was a simmering disk of water extending to every horizon beneath a bowl of impossible astral activity. It was beautiful, but he saw not a single survivor floating amidst the perfect plain of gently moving sea. He called one more time to see if anyone had made it and followed him through the storm, but no reply came. He cupped water from the bottom of the raft, thought about throwing it over, and then reconsidered. The majority of it was rainwater mixed with the powdery chemical of whatever had compressed the life raft. There was also some percentage of seawater from both his own soaked business suit and from when he struggled to get inside the raft. How much was drinkable and how much would be contaminated by the ocean? Did it even matter? The world is a much bigger place than a mere human can conceive. His chances of being found were low. It occurred to Sam that he knew absolutely nothing about survival. He knew how to survive in the business world, that much he could do from any continent, even on an island with an internet connection. Hell, he could probably do it in the middle of the ocean out here under those circumstances, but being able to make money didn't get him food or shelter here in the middle of the elements. He had been so comfortable in those airplanes, so naive of the daunting endless desert of ocean that stood between his destinations. If he could actually see where he was, look down from a drone and see exactly where he was floating in relation to where he needed to go, the view was probably maddening. Not wanting to risk drinking the water at the bottom of the raft, he shoveled it overboard, mostly so he could lie down in comfort once the rubber floor dried. He collapsed after doing all he could and closed his eyes as the ocean shifted him back and forth within the darkness. Eventually, light gleamed from the horizon, kindling a glow within the black sky to the east. He was able to see a flat plane of sea in every direction as he looked around, except directly behind him. Sam sat up and turned all the way around to see, far in the distance, a jutting stone piercing what would be a perfect horizontal line at the edge of his sight. He grabbed the paddle from the opposite side of the raft and began splashing and pushing himself toward the large object. It seemed to remain at a constant distance as he paddled in vain toward the stone that was beginning to glow in the morning light. A mist seemed to hang over the rock as he did move closer. As the sun pierced the sky ahead, Sam was able to see the shadows of large hills climbing behind the stone. He had done it. He had survived the impossible. 2. It took Sam another two hours to finally reach the shores of the large island that climbed to the height of a mountain in the distance. There was no end in sight ahead of him, so it couldn't possibly be uninhabited. He searched for some sign of life on the ocean, a morning fishing crew or casual sailor he'd been too delirious to see, but saw nothing. The entire shoreline and hill seemed empty save for the yellow wildflowers waving in the wind leading up to the fir trees that camped upon the hilltop. He noticed a copper light glinting beyond the trees upon the ridge leading to the mountain further down the island. He thought he'd be more exhausted from the plane crash, but it seemed a distant memory, no longer important to the current task at hand. Sam hiked up the hill to get a better look. Halfway to the top, he had to stop and take off his blazer because the sun was so strong. He paused, his mouth dry and his throat painfully in need of water. Shading his eyes from the sun, Sam looked out over the island below as the waves washed up and down the shore. It was so peaceful and relaxing here. He thought if he survived this, maybe he would come back and have a house built on the hilltop. It's so like your kind to see something and think you own it. A woman's voice sparked fear through Sam's chest. He turned around to see a woman sitting on a long, flat boulder upon the hill above, watching him. She had short black hair, almond eyes, crimson red lips, and she wore a beautiful flowing blue gown. She was barefoot and suddenly sat with her back straight and legs crossed. Water, Sam choked. She cocked her brow. Why would I give you anything after what you've done? What do you mean? He asked genuinely. All those people, she shook her head. I really don't understand. There's probably water on your life raft. She crossed her arms and gave him an unforgiving stare. Sam swallowed. You want me to go all the way back? 
he thumbed over his shoulder to the life raft that was no longer there. He gaped at the beach where he had pulled the raft, but it was now floating halfway out to sea. When Sam turned back around, the woman was standing right in front of him. Come on, she sighed, beckoning for him to follow. The two made their way to a footpath that led up the grassy, flower-covered hillside. My name's Sam, he said. What's yours? My name is... Oh, I see. He nodded and became lost in the beautiful landscape far below as they climbed to what was clearly an entrance of some kind built into the mountainside. The threshold was constructed of large, Greek columns that appeared to hold the mountain itself upon its shoulders above its yawning passage. The soft grass became sediment and gravel as the path fed to planks of yew wood that were cut perfectly square leading comfortably over the rocky stones of the mountainscape. Sam watched the woman move, the figure beneath the gown. For whatever reason, he couldn't help himself and didn't see any reason not to look. She seemed to know everything, even his thoughts. She stopped at the foot of a set of wooden steps leading to the threshold above. The glare she turned and gave him confirmed that hypothesis. They climbed the steps. When Sam looked to the sky, he noticed it was lavender now. He could see the stars through the tinted screen of the atmosphere twinkling from their positions in space. The two reached the top of the stairs and slowly entered what Sam could only consider to be a huge palace. The world seemed to slow as time no longer existed. An impossible relaxation coursed through Sam's arms and legs. It was like being very drunk without the full loss of impairment. He thought if he moved he might fall down. The woman turned around with a genuine smile upon her face as she embraced him. Welcome home, Sam. Her lips met his and he felt like he was falling. 3. Many years passed on the island. He spent his time eating whatever the woman prepared for him, drinking red wine and eating delicious fruits constantly. He began to refer to the woman in his mind as his wife. She was his partner in every way. He adored her and she adored him, despite the fact that she knew he had wronged her in some way. He couldn't put his finger on why, but it was something she lived with. Occasionally, Sam would enter an obscure part of the palace and find her weeping uncontrollably, or she would be at the piano playing some endlessly melancholy tune. Every time he heard her play, he would stand by the window of the palace and look down to the sea beneath the beautiful purple and red sky. He could feel her emotion in every note and chord she played. The sadness in the tune would always bring tears to his eyes as he stared into the silently rolling sea upon the shore. Of course, they made love regardless. It was to become one of their most consistent pastimes. The palace, vacant save for her and him, would become a den of passions at any part of the day that he or she wished. There was no force nor need, simply bare desire manifesting in physical emotion. While all he could give was heavenly for him, he could tell that she was never and could never be fully satisfied. As long as he spent in the palace, walking its corridors, climbing its stairwells, and navigating its hidden passageways through the solitude, he would remember only vague details of the place later. But at the time, every stone of the palace floor could be traced, every column holding the high ceiling above followed. Sam remembered observing the artistic style of those columns that stood forever within the timeless place that they existed. Sam walked day after day, night after night, through the darkness of palace corridors that would never see the light of day. He uncovered ancient passages only to find himself in another of the woman's bedrooms. If she was not waiting for him, then she was crying or playing one of her depressing tunes. It seemed an aeon of pleasure, peace, and leisure. Everything changed after Sam roused from a nap to find the woman on a balcony looking out to the sea. Her lips were pursed and her eyes were strong as the wind flowed through her gown. A vast thunderstorm was flickering upon the horizon in the distance, growing into a squall of blue. At last, she took a deep breath and turned to him. I'm sorry, Sam, but it's almost time for you to go. She lowered her face as tears streamed down her cheeks. Do I have to? he asked. The woman laughed and wiped her nose. She took his hand and led him to bed for the last time. 4. Holy crap! Someone yelled. He's waking up! Sam heard beeps and bloops from machines, felt people pushing and poking him, and then he felt himself riding down a long corridor as lights passed over his eyes. The light hurt so much, but he was awake. It felt important to be awake, but there was so much pain. God, there was pain from head to toe. His mind flashed to the island, to the waves, and finally, to the face of the woman he loved. An agony beyond any physical agony one can endure spread from his heart and seemed to cut his bodily pain in half. She was gone. It was all his fault. She was gone, and it was all his fault. God, please forgive me, he repeated over and over and over in a state of delirium. 
He said it because he must have somehow wronged the Almighty for him to allow such pain to exist in one human being. Several weeks of being in and out of consciousness passed when he finally opened his eyes and was able to look around coherently. He blinked and felt for something on his thin legs. His hand closed upon a rectangular object. When he pressed the button, he felt the bed slowly begin to rise. What the heck? A girl who'd been in the room suddenly threw down her book and ran to his side. He looked at her, not recognizing her face. She had brown hair, green eyes, and looked to be about 13 years old. Dad? She grinned. He opened his mouth to say something, but only sighed. It's okay, she patted his shoulder. Oh my god, I can't believe you're actually awake. He swallowed a clot of mucus and choked. The plane. The girl looked confused. Plane? The people. The plane. He blinked and held a shaking hand to his aching forehead. I've heard you talk about some woman multiple times in your sleep, but no plane. The plane crash. I, I survived, he managed. The girl pursed her lips. No motorcycle accident. He looked taken aback. What? Yeah, it was bad, she said. It happened a long time ago. I can show you pictures, but they aren't HQ like what we have nowadays. How long? He asked. She took a deep breath. My whole life, she swallowed, looking him up and down. My name is Aaron. I'm 13 years old. You had the accident while I was still in mom. Your, your mother. He looked to the girl to see a very hesitant and strained expression on her face. That's a question for later. But you do know your name, right, Dad? The girl leaned on the metal bedside bar. Samuel Green from Tennessee. The girl stepped away and stood up. Wow, not even close. He looked back and forth. No, I'm a high-level marketing analyst. She shook her head. No, wrong again. You're one of the biggest horror novelists, like, ever. She disappeared into the dimness of the hospital room and returned with a book. You wrote The Bloodfields in 1997. It was your first book and hugely controversial because the main chick gets popped three quarters of the way through. Pissed everybody off, me included. As Ricky Ricardo used to say, you got some splainin' to do. He looked at the cover of the book the girl was reading. The name at the bottom was Joseph Handler. Joe looked up to the girl's green eyes. My name is Joseph Handler? A rush of familiarity came to him. Memories began to spring up like wildflowers. He took a deep breath as the island, the palace, and the woman flashed into view. The book slipped from his grasp as he gaped at his daughter's suddenly worried face. What? Aaron asked. Your mother. He tried to sit up but couldn't. I need to see your mother. The girl looked down to her right. That's possible, eventually, but I don't think you'll be very happy to see her. I, uh... She licked her lips. Should probably let her tell you. Aaron confronted a device in her hand that looked like a phone. Once she put it away, Aaron told him the plots of several of the other books he'd written during his heyday of being a productive author. 5. It didn't take very much foresight to know that his wife, Melissa Handler, had moved on with her life. Joe had been in a coma for 13 years. It was hard to expect anyone to actually wait for that long. Not only had Melissa remarried, she had three other kids and had, of course, divorced him. Their reunion was short, sweet, and completely not what Joe had expected. The woman who was his wife was not the woman from the palace. Melissa had long, straight brown hair. Aaron had inherited the color, but her brown hair curled easily because of Joe's Scotch-Irish ancestry. Was the woman from the dream only that? A dream? His connection to her was so strong, it was impossible to believe that he hadn't known her at some point in his past life. His memories from that other life were fractured. He remembered a childhood. He could scarcely tell if it was actually his. Joe could recall writing none of his books. Aaron explained all of them to him, and they sounded absolutely horrible. There was so much nastiness, unnecessary violence, and terror in those novels. Aaron did figure out from a manuscript that Joe had been working on prior to the accident who Samuel Green was. He was the main character Joe had created for a book that probably wouldn't have been published. Samuel Green was a marketing analyst from Tennessee. He was about to have a daughter because Joe was about to have a daughter when he'd created Sam. Joe, Sam, Sam, Joe, all main characters are the author in some form or another. Joe pined for the palace during sleepless nights while he was rehabilitated in the facility where he woke originally. He remembered all of that more clearly than he remembered riding any motorcycle or the person who grinned sheepishly from old Polaroids that Aaron had brought for him to see. For whatever reason, the only thing he felt when he saw his own face was resentment. He would frequently get frustrated with his caretakers, everyone except Aaron, who fascinated him. They would ask him stupid questions, trying to get him to remember things from his past life. None of it was important. 
Joe remembered everything going forward from when he woke up, but he increasingly found little need to remember the strange life he had led prior to the accident. The only thing he wanted to remember more was the face of the woman he had met in the palace on that island. Joe dreamed of her several times when he did manage a few hours of sleep. He would reach for her, feeling the warmth of tears on his cheek as she watched him from the threshold of that amazing place that he loved so dearly. He needed only to be with her and his life could be complete. Let him keep the pain inside, but he begged while lying in the mess of bedsheets on his bed in the rehabilitation center after he woke for God to bring her back to him. She existed in his dreams, and every time he closed his eyes, asleep or awake, how could she not be real? And why was she still with him, haunting him, turning the knife in his heart with her absence? A dark depression began to creep through Joe as the weeks turned into months. He was slowly able to walk again. Being able to walk gave him a renewed reason to live. After losing so much, he had wondered if he would ever be able to feel complete again. Walking didn't heal the constant pain in his chest, but it did make him feel better when he could do it. Aaron brought him a laptop with an empty hard disk for him to write on, but Joe couldn't seem to type a single word. He thought the task of writing, of constructing plots, and imagining characters to be an impossible feat. As Aaron was getting ready to leave the rehabilitation facility for the evening that week, Joe called her at the door. When you come back next time, bring me something to paint. Aaron thought about this for a few seconds and then nodded and waved before taking her leave. Joe reclined in his chair and closed his eyes, praying his dreams would allow him a glimpse of the life he had lived on the island. Unfortunately, as time went on, he dreamed of the palace less and less. The woman was receding to a distant memory, and that hurt his heart even more than losing her the first time. 6. Two months of rehabilitation later, Joe was two weeks away from being released to a house he and Aaron had coordinated for him to acquire. Melissa still had full custody of Aaron, but she had allowed Aaron to see her father every Sunday prior to his waking up and saw no reason to allow her to stop seeing him on the same occasion. When Melissa came to pick up Aaron that Sunday afternoon, she brought a box of his things with her. She placed the box on the chair next to his bed before standing up. Melissa wiped her long brown hair from her face. I'm sorry, I didn't have a chance to bring all the stuff earlier. It was buried in the garage and Daryl didn't have time to clear a path to it all. She stopped when she saw the paintings that covered the room. Wow, I didn't know you painted. She picked up a painting he had done of the woman in the blue dress as she sat on the rock. He was by no means experienced, but the level of skill he had executed was far beyond what anyone could have expected from someone just starting. The girl in the picture wasn't looking out to sea, even though the sea was behind her on the right. She was looking directly at him with that stern, knowing expression. She sneered at him from the painting as she had sneered at him when he saw her. His memory was so clear and vivid. He could see the curvature of her face, the light brown and the black of her hair as the sun glistened off her shortcut hairstyle. It's good, Melissa said as she placed the painting back on the easel. Wish I could wake up from a coma as some prodigy artist, but you were already a well-established artist before the accident. She perused the other paintings, noticing one of the woman without clothes. She glanced at him with a smirk on her face. It's the only thing I felt like painting, Joe said. I do have so much time now, as you know. Aaron says you don't blame me for leaving you. Seems remarkably understanding, considering the circumstances, Melissa said as she stared at him. Her arms were crossed, making her look like an older version of her daughter. It was so strange that he sometimes remembered moments with Melissa, but he couldn't recall a single happy memory from their time together. He had to assume that would have been different if they'd been able to continue growing with Aaron. Honestly, it was my fault for having the accident, he said. Still, it somehow feels wrong. She sighed. It's just something that happened. Joe looked at another painting past his ex-wife and saw the woman looking over her shoulder at him lovingly. When Melissa followed his attention to the portrait, she picked it up and looked at it as she had the first painting. Who is this woman? Why do you keep painting her? He thought about his answer for a long time before he finally spoke. Someone who makes the pain go away. I guess I'll let Aaron know her father discovered Instagram. Is that what's on the smartphone Aaron won't put down? You should talk to her about that. Maybe you should. Mulsa shot him a cynical look. I have, Joe said patiently. We have a few other places to go before we go home and Aaron's already in the car. Need any help moving? I think I'll be able to manage, okay? Joe tapped the box in the chair by his bed. All right then, have a good week. I think Aaron is supposed to be camping next week, so we'll email you about the address to the house, Melissa said as she opened the door to his room in the rehabilitation center. Aaron will remember. See ya. Melissa waved as she walked down the hall, her heels clacking annoyingly until she left the building. Peace washed over him as he embraced the solitude of silence. When he looked out the window to the afternoon sun above the large bank building, he felt the warmth and relaxation he'd enjoyed on the island. 
With her looking back at him from every square or rectangular painting, it was as though she were with him once again. Looking down at his lap, Joe wondered if the woman had ever even existed. How could she have such a strong hold upon him if she hadn't? Joe stuck his hand into the box and sifted everything back and forth. There were three miniature photo albums that had pictures of him and his family from the 80s and 90s. There was a larger one that was half full. It featured pictures of Joe and a beautiful young Melissa. He had to be fair to himself. Melissa was still beautiful, and she was a good person. It was his fault things had gone so sourly. She had told him dozens of times to get rid of that motorcycle, that much he could remember very clearly. There were other knickknacks and odds and ends from his childhood that had been stuffed in the box. Joe's mother had died when he was 13 years old after undergoing an experimental cancer treatment. It had awarded him and his father a considerable settlement from the pharmaceutical company that was responsible, but it's hard to come back from a loss like that. His father passed when Joe was 22, right after Joe had published his first horror novel. He could never put down the bottle after his wife died. Ten years later, Joe almost killed himself in that damn motorcycle accident. Joe swallowed hard, mopping his hand over his mouth as he listened to Aaron's explanation of how he had slipped. He'd been about to get on a bridge overpass, went through the yellow light at the intersection at the bottom of the bridge, and then he hit a piece of wood that caused the bike to skid out from under him. With the speed he was going, Joe hit the guardrail, both his legs were smashed by the bike, and then he was flung over the rail into the creek where he was knocked unconscious from the fall. It took 13 years for him to finally wake up from that. He felt his hands shaking as he thought about the accident. He didn't know if he'd ever be able to drive a car again, but he definitely wouldn't be able to ride a motorcycle. He shoved the photo albums in the box out of the way and withdrew an old laptop. The battery on the bottom was swollen and the charger was so grimy and filthy he doubted it would work. Joe was able to get on the computer in the lobby and order a new battery and charge cable, which ran him a grand $33.60, minus the cost of the tiny toolkit he ordered so he could actually get the computer apart. He was glad eBay was still around and not much different from the 2007 version. Even after his divorce and losing the majority of his novel's profits to Melissa, he still had millions of dollars to his name from royalties that had built up in the five years since their divorce. That was good since the rehabilitation center wasn't cheap. It also meant he could get anything he needed without issue. His items arrived a few days and two new paintings later. He had drawn a vast hallway from the palace that he had grown familiar with in his dreams. That and he drew the woman on the balcony with the storms on the horizon. He had taken much longer with that picture, but it seemed to cast a spell on any of the assistant workers who came in to check on him. It was different than the other paintings. He had used darker colors to highlight her flowing blue dress as the storms had been drawn with deep detail far ahead of her. Joe set to the task of taking apart the old laptop. As he unscrewed the back panel, he glanced at the smiling face of the woman from the island on his bedside table. He had drawn it close up and with as much detail as he could so that it looked like a selfie photo she had taken for him. A sinking sensation in his chest made him realize that to everyone looking in, he had married his invisible friend. The woman didn't exist. The people in his life didn't want to upset his recovery by saying that he had woken up, but he was still trying to hold on to the dream. He dismissed the judgment and continued his work on the laptop. What did he care what everyone thought? They probably thought he'd killed himself for 13 years, but here he was, back in the saddle, a little slow to the upkeep, but he was breathing and continuing to live just the same. Was his fantasy any different from the fantasies on Aaron's phone that every individual in the world seemed to have bought into without question? At least his fiction created a silent solitude in his mind as he painted. All felt right. All felt calm. Isn't that what it's all about? He replaced the battery with the new one and seated the back panel flush to the other part of the laptop. It booted right up and went straight to the password screen. A few irritated phone calls with Melissa later, he realized that he had locked it with a password that even she with her infinite inside wisdom to her previous husband's mind couldn't guess. She wasn't trying very hard, but she gave him some ideas. She had thrown out all his favorite characters that had become passwords at one point, anniversary and wedding dates, birthdays, none of them worked. With no further insight, she let him go and he spent the next hour learning how to masterfully hack that old version of the computer to bypass and recreate the password. It would always give him an error sign in the future, but he was able to unlock the thing nonetheless. An eagerness passed over him as he scanned old manuscript documents, pictures he thought were interesting or funny, and notes he had made at one point. It was a gold mine of information about his upcoming novels if he were able to write anymore. He had nothing planned, so as good as the ideas were, they fell upon a mind that was unreceptive to their quality. He went further through his notes, slowly uncovering a major clue that was growing too large to ignore. The old Joe had been a horror writer. He wrote violent scenes and had violent ideas and liked to keep track of the creepy and bizarre for later reference. 
As the current Joe moved deeper into the older Joe's past, he began to uncover poetry that was not like the ultraviolence he seemed to prefer in later years. The poetry referenced someone vaguely, but it didn't match his feelings for Melissa. Your smile can't hide the sadness in your eyes, and no amount of recompense will cleanse my conscience of this guilt. To know that I have destroyed you is the deepest cut, but from here we must grow with this scar to remind us of our shame. I could move mountains with your love, but cold and empty is the space where I exist without you. My penance, never to see you, speak to you, hear your beautiful voice, or see your amazing smile, is to be exiled to solitude for a thousand lifetimes. This is the weight of my love for you. It drags me to the bottom of the ocean. It is silent down here as the pressure slowly crushes me from the inside out. So long as you are somewhere in the world, so long as your heart and my heart are beating at the same time, I can continue through this torment. The hunger pains inside of this vessel will linger on, for I have been empty of you for so long. Please God, be happy in your life above all else. Joe closed the document. It seemed to describe the precise feeling he felt after waking up and losing the woman from the dream. He had hoped a clue to his feelings would make him feel better, but somehow knowing more made him feel even worse. 7. Joe didn't get out of bed the next morning, and he didn't open the computer. He couldn't think of anything to paint, and it was rainy outside. His notes spoke glowingly of his love for the rain when he was the old Joe, but now it brought a cold to his bones that he didn't like. Without her to keep him warm, the rain seemed to be a reminder that he was completely alone. The distance between him and the palace stream was so vast, the experience might as well have not happened at all. He took no comfort in his pictures of the place. They, too, only reminded him of what was lost. Someone knocked on Joe's door. Carrie, the blonde receptionist from the front desk, entered and told him to get dressed, that he had a ten o'clock interview he'd agreed to a month prior. Joe reluctantly dressed in a small fitting suit Aaron had bought for him online. When he looked at himself in the mirror, he fixed his hair to the best of his ability and shrugged at his desperate appearance. He went out to the lobby where a couch had been set up for the interview. The interviewer was a thin Asian woman named Tanya Chang. Joe gave her a small nod and unbuttoned the button from his suit jacket as he sat down. He was miked and a makeup person hit him with a few pats before calling him good. Once the cameras were rolling, the woman smiled her cheesy journalist smile. Good afternoon, Mr. Handler. How are you feeling? Tanya asked. Good enough, I suppose. I've got to admit, she pressed her lips adorably. I'm a huge fan of your work. I can't believe how young you were when you wrote those books. I'm glad you enjoy them, but I have no memory of writing them. Honestly, every time someone says something like that, I feel like I'm taking credit for someone else's work. You have no memory at all of having written some of the creepiest, most literary works of horror in the last century? No memory at all whatsoever, he said. I wouldn't read those books if I had nothing else to read and I was on a 14-hour flight. They're garbage. She gave a half-surprised look that allowed her to save face. Well, I still enjoy being creeped out on a rainy day like this, even if I know it's just an ickfest later on. An ickfest indeed. There's nothing in those books for anyone. What about the most recent adaptation of your third book into a movie, Shipwrecked Upon the Isle of Madness? Tanya quickly scanned the pictures on her phone and held up the advertisement poster. What's your two cents on that one? Joe was suddenly without words as he stared at the picture. A large palace stood against a purple sky, dropping to the sea in the background. In the center of the poster was a black-haired woman in a blue dress with her arms spread invitingly. The names of the cast were at the bottom along with the coming release date. He swallowed hard as Tanya closed her phone and set it on her lap. I don't remember my daughter telling me about that one. He put a hand to his forehead and realized he was sweating. Are you alright? Tanya asked. No, I mean yes, it's just that I had such a vivid dream about... that place. I'm surprised to see that it really exists. You can say what you will about your other books, but nothing was more terrifying than that book in my humble opinion. I couldn't put it down. The interview continued in a droning back and forth that Joe was only half paying attention to. Not only had the woman not existed, he had made her up before the coma. The woman from the story had been his anchor while he recovered. None of it had been real, and he felt betrayed by that. Joe didn't like the old Joe very much. He thought he had been selfish in more ways than one, didn't think his stories were very original, and didn't quite understand why he'd become famous. But to know that the only person he really cared about had been a creation of that unpleasant individual's mind disquieted him. Tanya took a photo with Joe in front of the painting he had painted of the woman in the blue dress. It would later go viral and the photo itself would find its way into the nearby museum downtown. The two finished up and Tanya thanked Joe for his time. He told her it was his pleasure and then went back to his room where he stared at the ceiling for the next two hours. 
Sleep was an elusive thing that night. It liked to approach and then vanish, leaving him wide awake with the memory of her in the bed at his side. It wasn't something he wanted to do, but he couldn't sleep so he painted that image until the sun came up the next morning. 8. Joe spent the next week moving his things with the help of a lift service. The driver didn't seem to mind carrying Joe's box of photo albums and computer into his small two-bedroom house as Joe wheeled a carrier with his clothes inside after him. Joe gave the young man a 20 as a tip and paid the bill online. The house was small but empty. Joe ordered the essentials, namely a bed, and was able to walk to the nearby grocery store a few blocks away. The following Sunday, he went back to the rehabilitation facility to collect his paintings with Aaron and Melissa. They were able to load everything into the back of her Honda Odyssey and unpack it with ease at his house. After, Melissa gave Joe a hug and told Aaron she would be back to pick her up in six hours. Thanks for hanging out with me today, kiddo. Joe put his arm around Aaron's shoulder. I can't believe I didn't tell you about shipwrecked upon the Isle of Madness, she scoffed. Yeah, I figured you would have said something about that after seeing the paintings. I never actually finished that book. It was scary as hell. I read the cliff notes, though. Guy shipwrecks on an island, meets this creepy lady who's like the ghost of this Greek goddess or something. She drives him crazy. There's some sex ritual with a demon or something. I don't know. It got way too weird for my taste. I'm still only 13, you know. They went inside the house and Aaron made coffee with a coffee maker that Joe hadn't unpacked yet. Joe continued working on a landscape painting he had started that afternoon after lunch. While he did this, Aaron went through his old computer, finding more than he had found himself. She found pictures he'd had on the device from when he was in the Dallas Youth Orchestra. He'd been 18 at that time in 1995. He had grown proficient with the violin since one of his favorite characters, Sherlock Holmes, dabbled with the instrument. Joe had gotten quite good at it and had joined the youth orchestra when he was 17 years old. Cool, you look just like one of the Beatles, Aaron laughed. Joe didn't look, but smiled as he continued painting. Wow, you performed a solo on stage at the Carnegie Hall. That must have been amazing. I can't remember any of it, Joe sighed and glanced at the photo. It was then that he did a double take at not himself in his concert dress tuxedo, but the woman at the piano behind him. Joe dropped the paintbrush on the easel and stared at the old picture on the computer. It was her, no doubt about it. That woman behind the piano, suspended in mid-play with one hand, a sustained chord with the other, was none other than the woman he had been dreaming about for the last thirteen and a half years. Who is she? Aaron looked between her father's stark expression, the picture, and the paintings on the wall. Are they the same person? I really don't know how to explain it, Joe said slowly. I guess I should tell you everything I remember from the coma. He would have thought it would take longer than five minutes to explain the entirety of what he did day to day for 13 years, but it was impossible to remember anything more than simple details. The details he had noticed in that other world would have been exactly the same as the description he gave in his novel. However silly Joe thought it all was, Aaron didn't seem to think it was silly at all. Give me 15 minutes and I'll find this person for you. Guarantee it or your money back. Aaron whipped out her phone and went to work. Joe found three other pictures of him and the woman together. The most intriguing was one after the performance was over of the two shaking hands, her giving him the same loving smile that he had watched slowly wake and look back at him each morning in his dreams. What had happened to them? Had they become something more when the two were so young twenty years ago? Why was there both a sense of eagerness and a sense of dread deep within him at the sight of her? Found her, Aaron sang. Kang Yumi. She's both an opera singer and a pianist for the Soul Symphony Orchestra. She has half a million followers on Instagram. Half a million and one? Aaron tapped something on her phone. Are you sure that's... Joe's voice broke off when his eyes met the sneering, mocking expression of the girl from his dreams. She was identical in every way, and the sight of her made his heart skip a beat. How did you find her so quickly? Being young is a hell of a drug, Aaron said. Looks like she has a concert performance in two weeks. Oh, Rachmaninoff. Joe realized how integral the woman's piano playing had been within his dreams, the haunting melodies she would play through the evenings and long into the mornings. He didn't think there was anything he would love more than to hear her play once again. Erin continued her maddening control and handle of the internet through her thumbs. Let's see, Korean Air has a flight in a week and a half. We could be in Seoul for that Valentine's Day concert if I can get an away note for school. BTS is performing at a venue like two blocks away from there later that night. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, I'm gonna see BTS! What? We're not going to South Korea. Your mom would kill me, Joe said. A sudden flash of memory from the plane crash that had felt so real to him made him realize that he probably wouldn't be able to board a plane without having a panic attack anyway. 
Come on, you gotta find out why this lady keeps popping up in your dreams, said Aaron. My 50,000 followers on Instagram have been liking and loving your paintings for months now. How about this? Aaron cocked her brow and set to work on her phone. What are you doing? Don't you dare contact her. Aaron held up the phone innocently. I don't have to contact her directly, but I can tag her in my post that included you and the journalist. Maybe she'll see your painting of her and want to meet with you. I don't like this. Joe shook his head. There's a reason that person isn't in my life, and, and I'm afraid to find out why. Do what you want, Dad. You don't have to meet with her, but if you want to make up for 13 years of no birthdays and Christmas gifts, you could start by taking me on a trip to South Korea to see BTS. What is BTS? I've never heard of that before. Aaron merely gave him a hopeless look before turning her attention back to her phone without answering. 9. Some events are inevitable. Your first and last breath, regular illness throughout your life, old age, but none are so powerful as the movement of destiny. Joe saw himself boarding a plane after giving a ticket to the woman at a gate that said Incheon Airport, South Korea, with Aaron ahead of him, her carry-on in hand. They had somehow convinced Melissa to allow Aaron to travel to South Korea with her father for a weekend. It was all Aaron's handiwork. Joe merely nodded along as she spoke. And there they were, watching the clouds pass beneath the plane as it brought them closer and closer to destiny. There is no feeling so strong as destiny. Yumi had liked Aaron's video, so she had watched it at least, but she hadn't said anything else. Joe hated looking at her pictures. Something about the ease with which one could view her life felt wrong. Their flight continued for another 13 hours. Aaron fell asleep while listening to music, but Joe continued staring straight ahead as the real airplane that was similar to his nightmare but not the same in any way continued flying them across the coast of Alaska. At last, they landed in Incheon Airport and took a tram to Seoul. That took a little over an hour, but they were able to move through the crowds of South Korean people to the nice hotel they were able to book a week in advance. Aaron slept easily in her bed by the door, but Joe sat on the edge of the bed looking out over the Han River from the Latte World Tower where they were staying. She was out there somewhere, maybe staying in the same hotel as him for all he knew. It was impossible to sleep, knowing how close he was to her but being unable to tell her how he felt. He thought about contacting her through Aaron's application, but decided that would be awkward. Morning came, and the two went downstairs to have breakfast at the hotel. After, they toured the city. Aaron was snapping and posting photos the entire way. At least her mother could know that she was safe and happy based on her online photo feed. Joe felt a sense of familiarity everywhere he went, like he had been here and could walk to any place his feet would take him and he could find his way back. He was not so comfortable walking for hours and hours on end, having just recovered from a coma six months prior. They were able to find him a cane from one of the outdoor markets that helped ease the load a bit. A gray cloud cover set in as few traces of snow feathered from the heavens. The two returned to the hotel so he could take a short rest before the concert was to begin at seven in a few hours. The two woke as snow fell beyond the glass of their window, powdering sole below. Joe dressed in a nice black dress shirt and black slacks with matching black loafers. Aaron was going to have to cut out before his concert could end so that she could make it to her concert at the Olympic Hall across the street. She wore a pair of jeans, brown boots, and a nice jacket over her t-shirt that she could take off when she got to the insanity of the K-pop concert. Joe had worried about letting her go alone, but she had a Korean girlfriend that was her age who was meeting her for the concert in front of the Latte Concert Hall, so she wouldn't be alone. The BTS concert was set to end at 11, so he would make sure to pick her up right after it ended. Joe and Aaron made their way to the elevator and descended to the lobby before exiting to the street. The Latte Concert Hall was next door, so they didn't have to travel far. The two entered, gave the front admission their tickets that Aaron had ordered online, and found their front row seats inside. Aaron took a dozen selfies of herself and of Joe the entire time. Joe couldn't exactly remember his life as a kid, but he didn't think he had been so on all the time. Kids nowadays were like entrepreneurs, working to embolden their brand and image on a daily basis every waking moment. It seemed exhausting. When did a person just sit on a park bench and appreciate being alive without needing to crystallize the scene with a photo they'll never look at for some likes that aren't even useful? He was thinking about that when the lights went down. There was a single extravagant piano on stage that was lit by a cylinder of white light. His dreams seemed to come to life as Kong Yumi stepped out from the shadows into the light with the piano. Her black hair was longer than it had been in Joe's memory. She wore a long black dress that covered one shoulder with a slit up the side to her thigh. Everyone clapped as she bowed to them and then to the composer and the orchestra at the ready on her left. Once Yumi had seated herself at the piano, she nodded to the composer and he raised his baton to the ready. She began by playing solo as the strings eventually accompanied her. 
Joe closed his eyes and saw her alone in the palace playing that melancholy tune. There was so much emotion as he pressed his palm to his lips, slowly opening his eyes to view the most heavenly dreamlike moment of his waking life, to see her moving in real time, to see the bounce of her hair as she thrummed passionately upon the piano. The movements went up and down and all around as she and the orchestra channeled the very energy of the composer's passion. He watched her greedily, sketched her face in his mind a thousand different ways, saw her every movement as a work of divine art. Aaron wrapped him on the shoulder to let him know that it was time for her to go. He nodded and she slowly slipped through the crowded seats to the aisle so she could quietly leave. Joe stayed and became lost in Yumi's performance once more until the last aggressive note was played. She immediately stood up with the applause of the crowd as the conductor took her hand and bowed with her to the audience. When Yumi came back up, her eyes locked upon Joe's. She couldn't hide that they had widened, but she quickly shifted her attention to someone else before smiling broadly. He watched her hurry off stage with the other performers after it was over. Just as quickly as she had appeared, she was gone. He waited for everyone else in the audience to leave, and then when the staff began sweeping the aisles, Joe got up and left the theater. 10. It was still snowing as he walked down the street alone. A young Korean couple leaned upon one another as they stumbled down the sidewalk on the opposite side of the road, completely wasted. Joe followed his feet as he had wanted to earlier. Yeah, it was cold and it was snowing, but having basically died once before made him not really mind dying again. Did it really matter in the grand scheme of things? Obviously, the world had been able to move on after his first passing. He knew he wouldn't die here in South Korea while in proximity to the city. He just wanted to let his heart take him where it wanted to take him for a little while, and then he'd negotiate with the smartphone that he hated dealing with to navigate back to the Olympic Theater in two hours to pick up Aaron. He used his Metro Pass to take the train across the river where he exited north of the Namsung Park. He and Aaron had walked through the park previously. He had wanted to sit on a park bench there, but she was in too much of a hurry to get to a Keiko store for more of that silly animated merchandise that came in large yellow bags. He followed a path through the park and found precisely what he was looking for, a place to sit and look at the city under the snow. Joe did exactly that, and sat in the chair with his cane resting at his side while the snow fell from the heavens. He breathed the cool January air, felt the dust of the snow brush his cheeks and nose, and looked up to the cloudy gray sky. A few people walked past him, mostly couples. He thought of her in the palace, remembered her playing in real life, and realized that it was enough. If he never saw her again, then to know that she was alive and well was enough. There was really little else he could do. Romances don't exist in real life, the same way people usually don't survive airplane crashes in the middle of the Pacific Ocean only to find themselves romantically coerced on a fantasy island. Coming here to find her had been part of that fantasy. Whatever he had done in the past to receive that look Yumi gave him at the end of the performance was enough to tell him that it wasn't something easily ignored. From here, he faced the slow process of accepting that his dreams were just that. Dreams. A pelt of snowy powder interrupted his thoughts and made him stand up. When he looked down the stone steps of the path, he saw a woman in a black dress with a black blazer over her shoulders. She was grinning at him as she patted another snowball in her gloved hands. Don't, don't do it! Joe held up a hand as she feigned throwing the snowball at him. After what you did? She bit her lip as she aimed. She launched the snowball, which nailed him right in the side of his jacket. Yumi jogged the steps and threw her arms around Joe, who felt more shocked by her appearance and actions than he was relieved. She pulled away. I went to your hotel, but you weren't there. Your daughter was following me online. I followed her back and was able to figure out where your favorite place in the city was. Happens to be our favorite place in the city. 11. Yumi took him to a coffee shop just outside the park and ordered a coffee for each of them. Joe couldn't believe he was sitting across from her, seeing the actual curvature of her face and her expression looking back at him. I take it you know what happened to me, Joe asked finally. She nodded. Motorcycle accident. We were still talking, even then, she said in her accent in English. Really? Joe wrinkled his forehead. You really are an asshole, don't you know? She took a sip of her coffee, closing her eyes as she breathed the steam from it. Probably, I just don't remember why, Joe said. I wanted to marry you, and you wanted to marry me. I had to take care of my father on the island, and when I come back, you've married someone else. You are an asshole. Her brown eyes met his. But I never stopped loving you, asshole. She squinted that familiar sneer. Then you went and got yourself nearly killed. I almost died when I thought you died. So you and I were together before I met my wife. 
We met after a guest performance concert when we were 19. We were young and stupid. You were young and stupider, she answered. Listen, whatever I did in the past, I can make up for it, but something about you made it possible for me to live and come back. I'm not asking for a relationship, but I do think it's important for you to know just what you mean to me. That's really the only reason I came here. You could have told me that online. We used to email one another every week, even after you were married. Like I said, I was mad at you, but I never stopped caring. The heart is complicated instrument, as you know. To put it lightly, Joe took Yumi's hand. I would spend the rest of my life trying to make up for the time we lost together. I, I don't know if there's anything else in this world for me without you. Time, my good friend. Yumi patted his hand before pulling hers away to take another sip of coffee. We will see in time, but you must go pick up your daughter shortly. Joe nodded and all was good. So long as he could be near her, all was good. Denouement Joe's emergence into the waking world was short-lived. He had increasingly complicated health problems and only lived another year and a half. He was able to secure his legacy by publishing 12 additional unpublished novels that were in various stages of completion from before his comatose state. He did it with the help of his new wife, Yumi Kong Handler, and his daughter, Erin. As his health became more and more delicate, Joe asked if while he was dying he could hear Yumi play a list of her solemn songs. When the family physician said that Joe was on his way out, Yumi cried as she played his favorite melancholy songs ending on vocalese by Rachmaninoff. In Joseph Handler's biography that Yumi organized and released a year after his death, she claimed in the afterward that a violent thunderstorm seemed to shake their house by the sea during his final moments. The last line she wrote was, The great father Zeus has confirmed his passing, only to leave me alone on this island of sadness until the end of my days. This concludes episode 14 of the Apocalypse Theater podcast. Romance is not really my cup of tea, but I feel like this episode, with its many ominous layers of emotion, belongs in our catalog of episodes. I hope I didn't leave too many easter eggs lying around, but history will be the judge of that. Moving forward, I have another really cool thriller podcast episode that I'm about a third of the way finished with. It's way more raw and gritty like we're used to, not this flowery romance stuff that somehow got worked into the mix for Valentine's Day. After that, there's a freaking awesome epic fantasy episode that I have to wrap up for you guys, and then we're going to have either the final episode of Beyond Oker's current story arc, or the next episode of The Chronicles of Alondronon with Jonathan. So there are four more episodes I have planned just in the next few months, barring we don't all get nuked by the coronavirus. I'm busting my ass on audiobooks, give me seriously like six months and a floodgate of projects are gonna go live. In the meantime, if you guys want to support the podcast, the best way you can do that is to subscribe, tell your friends to check it out, and just listen. Go to my website and donate five bucks if you want, but I'm doing this because you and I both share a love of stories, and that's what this is all about. Please have a great week, month, however long it takes me to pump out the next episode. Until next time, my friends, live your best life, drive safely, and be kind to others. Oh, try not to die, eat some kimchi, and kick that coronavirus's ass. Anyanikeseo! The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was produced, directed, written, edited, and voiced by Benjamin Allen. If you'd like to support our podcast, be sure to subscribe, leave a good review, like, or check out our donation page on the contacts page of our website. Visit ekpublishingmedia.com for more information. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media Production 2020.